Gospel of John, chapter 13. And then we'll read the answer to question 27 of the Shorter Catechism, and that's on page 871 in the back of the red hymnal. John 13, a very wonderful and glorious passage where we see very clearly uh, the nature of our Savior as Jesus washes the disciples' feet. We'll read verses 1 through 17. This is God's holy word. He gives it to us for our good. Let's give our attention to its reading. John 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. Question 27 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We'll read the answer together. Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, being made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time.
one of the most fascinating stories, uh, really one of the up and down stories of the English Reformation is that of Thomas Cranmer, the man who wrote the Book of Common Prayer. He was a political maneuverer most of his life, and he uh, had a number of interesting episodes, and uh, had a certain time where he had a, a great triumph, really, under King Edward VI. And Protestantism was able to be instituted in, in all of the realm. He sort of bided his time, hoping for this opportunity, and then he was able to, to really put in wonderful men, ministers, all throughout, um, really around the area of London, but, but in many ways uh, throughout the land, instituting what he saw and what we would say is truly the gospel. But when Edward died, Queen Mary I, um, known to some as Bloody Mary, she took the throne and fiercely went on a mission to reverse the Reformation in England. He was a very committed Roman Catholic. Cranmer was public enemy number one. It was not good only to capture him. It was not good only to execute him. He had to be disgraced. And uh, really, recanting reversals had to be brought out of him. Uh, She wanted him to be disgraced in many ways. At his trial, they dressed him up in vestments that were tattered and, and very mocking. Striking in similarity to how Jesus was mocked at the time of his trial. One of the men who had kind of risen to power recently ripped off his fake vestments in the presence of the people. And he said, now you are no Lord. This this position that he had had as uh, archbishop was taken away. The man actually too scratched his hands because in in Church of England, there's a, a tactile element that the apostolic succession goes through sort of a physical laying on of hands and to signify that his unction had been, had been taken away. In those humiliating moments, we, we don't know exactly what Cranmer must have been thinking. Certainly many things would have been flying through his head. But you wonder if, as all of this is sort of going on, and, and uh, truly in his heart, certainly believed that he was undergoing reproach for the sake of the gospel, that he could have felt closer to his Lord when all of these things were going on. Suffering for the sake of Christ and for the name of Christ. Becoming like him in his sufferings. This was really one of the profoundest mysteries of the Christian faith. One of the most comforting things uh, that we hold on to as, as Christians. As we look to Christ. That if we suffer for the name of Christ. Uh, if we are humbled for the name of Christ. Then it is all to our advantage as we know our Savior more. We look to Jesus, not only was he humiliated, but he willingly chose to be humble in service to his brothers, in service to his friends, in service to those whom he wanted to save. We see that that humility hangs over the Christian faith in, in a way that is undeniable, makes it absolutely central to the Christian life in all the ways that it touches how Uh, the kinds of experiences we might have, as we mentioned. Trials, uh, bearing scoffing and ridicule for the name of Christ, or simply entering into humility on a day-to-day basis. 
Choosing to be like Jesus in something simple that is done in the service of another. So we'll talk about uh, three things tonight. Really the, the nature of his humiliation, Jesus' humiliation. The wonder of his humiliation. And then the response to his humiliation. So first, the nature of his humiliation. It's obviously quite important to grasp and to embrace this teaching that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the glorious one who had his glory veiled as he takes on human flesh. It brings before us the sufferings of Christ and sets before us uh, the lifelong mission without which we would not be saved from our sin and our misery. Jesus needed to suffer. It's the same doctrinal point that is found in our own Heidelberg Catechism when it discusses the fact that Christ suffered. We read there, what does it mean that he suffered? That all the time that he lived on earth, but especially at the end of his life, he bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race, in order that by his passion, as the only atoning sacrifice, he might redeem our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtain for us the grace of God, righteousness, and eternal life. So the Heidelberg Catechism unfolds the meaning of his suffering and humiliation. The Westminster Shorter Catechism first details the nature of his suffering and his humiliation. These are important to think about and to realize as we don't often take time to consider all of these things together. The birth of Christ, the life of Christ, all play into his humiliation. First we consider the birth of Christ. With our celebration of Christmas, it's often something that gives us warm and fuzzy feelings. Thinking about Jesus laid in a manger, and usually we're thinking about a, a quite peaceful scene. Probably wasn't as peaceful as we, we think it was. But we love newborn babies, and that's why we love uh, the celebration of Christmas. And there's nothing in, in the world perhaps more precious than a newborn child. But when we consider that it is the eternal God who enters in this form of weakness, it highlights the great chasm between his estate of heavenly glory and human infant weakness. Thomas Watson says this, that Christ should clothe himself with our flesh, a piece of the earth upon which we tread. O infinite humility. Christ's taking our flesh was one of the lowest steps of his humiliation. He humbled himself more in lying in the virgin's womb than in hanging upon the cross. It was not so much for man to die, but for God to become man was the wonder of humility. He goes on to say, He who thunders in the heavens cried in the cradle. We read in Philippians that Jesus takes on the form of a servant. What does that mean? It at least partially means that his taking on a human nature, taking on human flesh, is to become like one who is obligated to serve God. All of us, made in God's image, we appear in this world as those who owe their obedience to God. And Christ comes to earth as a man. The creator and Lord becomes the servant. Because you and I, by nature, are servants made to serve God. Jesus Christ, God the Son, takes on that form. There's a powerful image that connect here that connects to our text tonight. 
Many of you have probably heard that as Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, he takes off his outer garments and he is dressed as a, a household servant as he washes the disciples' feet. What a powerful image of the willingness of our Savior, the willingness of our Lord to be humbled in order to save his people. His whole life, in that sense, was a clothing with humility. He takes the form of that which is to serve rather than his natural appearance as glorious, as awesome. And so if we think about this, if you are in awe that Christ became like us, and you should be, we all ought to be, then let it fuel you to be like him. We ought to be in awe that our Lord purposed to take on human flesh. But as you think about that, remember that he did so, so that he might cleanse us, so that he might make us more like him, to conform us to his image as he gives us salvation, as he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. So think about Christ became like us, we ought to desire to become more like him. His birth is part of his humiliation, his life. He underwent the miseries of this life. Having dressed as a servant, Jesus performed a servant's task, just as he does when he washes the feet. He uh, performs the task of a servant as he washes the feet of the disciples. Jesus went through many of the common miseries of our fallen world. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He became tired. He was sad. He was in anguish. He was often lonely, often feeling the sting of being despised and rejected of men. Watson, again, is careful to point out that the infirmities of fallen men can either be sinful without pain, things like greed, enmity, malice, or lust, or they can be painful without sin. It is, of course, that second category that Jesus experienced. And when he came here, he didn't experience all kinds of of inner toil from sinfulness. He didn't have feelings, inward desires that themselves were sinful, like lust or greed or malice. But he suffered the pain of this fallen world without sinning. We experience the effects of of a sinful heart that Jesus did not. But when we do, we look to Christ and we understand that he has freed us from sin by enduring the pain of a fallen world and remaining righteous, that he uh, faced the test and he passed the test. But in his life, that was part of his humiliation, to go through the 33 years of his life and experiencing the common miseries of this fallen world, the eternal God subjecting himself to these things. The third stage of his humiliation is his death. Jesus subjects himself to the death of the cross, which is a cursed death. This was something that the disciples could not understand. Jesus told them, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the hands of of lawless and sinful men. I'm going to be uh, killed and I'm going to rise again on the third day. He said that many times. And the disciples still, as they made their way to Jerusalem... They did not grasp it. Jesus says in John 13, verse 7, in our text, he says, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. The death, the resurrection, 
made all things plain, the nature of the salvation. Of course, the disciples had that earthbound mindset that Jesus as the Messiah, as the promised one, as the anointed one, he's going to set up an earthly kingdom. That's not what he came to do. He was humbled further. He went lower so as to redeem us to a higher place. And then the last stage of his humiliation is after his death. This is one that's much more mysterious to us, but the Catechism says part of Jesus' humiliation is continuing under the power of death for a time. One theologian puts it this way, speaking of Jesus, his body lying in the tomb. It is the midnight of his humiliation now. It seemed as if now surely the powers of darkness had gotten the victory and that Satan had triumphed. Death, the penalty of sin, had laid him low, and the grave held him firmly in its grasp. He was really dead. His spirit had gone to God who gave it, and his body lay cold and lifeless in its rock-hewn tomb. Though Jesus taught us on the cross that he would go to be with his father, he says to one of the thieves, today you will be with me in paradise. His exaltation was yet to come. And thus, in the eyes of the world, he appears as really and truly dead. It appears as though he has been defeated. And it will not be until the resurrection that his exaltation begins. Though he had never sinned, he went to the place of the dead. And that is part of the wonder of the life of Christ. That's the nature of his humiliation. What of the wonder of his humiliation? Keep in mind that what was so amazing about this episode of the foot washing is not that Jesus transforms into the form of a servant, but rather the very form of God is revealed in a servant. Jesus does not relinquish his divinity in all that he does. He remains true God as he does all that he does. So he is no less glorious And yet his glory is veiled to unbelieving eyes. Nevertheless, this is something that any of the disciples would have gladly done for Jesus. If they they sit down for dinner or they're reclining at dinner and Jesus asks the disciples if one of them would wash his feet, they probably all would have jumped up and would have gladly taken the opportunity to do so. F.F. Bruce points that out in his wonderful commentary on John. But what the disciples would not have done is wash each other's feet. If Jesus would have said, now one of you, you know, Peter, James, whoever, why don't you go and wash all of the other disciples' feet? Well, that would have been something that probably we can say they they would have resisted doing. Because it's not something that you, you would do with your peers, with your equals. You might do with someone whom you revere, that you feel is above you in position. The disciples often bickering about which of them was greatest, who was going to sit at the right hand of Jesus, who was going to have a special share in the kingdom. And so they would have gladly done this for Jesus. They probably would not have done this for one another. It's perhaps because of this instinct that, uh, that they would not have washed one another's feet, that Peter sort of blurts out, Jesus, I'm not going to let you do this. And it's likely that this is what they all were thinking. They're all thinking the same thing. They're all very uncomfortable with Jesus washing their feet. But Jesus responds with something that 
catches our attention, or it should. It certainly caught Peter's attention. He says that accepting this display of humility, or at least what it signifies, is the only way to have a share in Jesus. And to share in him, what does that mean? What Jesus means here is basically to share in his work, to share in his saving work, and the benefits of his saving work. He's talking about salvation. Whatever is going on here in this picture, the signifying of, of what he's doing, Jesus says, unless you can accept this kind of display of humility, you will have no part in me. So we learn that the humbling of the Savior, the humbling of God the Son, is something that is absolutely necessary. Why is that? It's because he can only redeem the lowly if he himself becomes lowly. We return to our own catechism once again. Why was it necessary, the Heidelberg says, for Christ to humble himself even unto death? The answer, because satisfaction for sin could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. Jesus teaches us that there is no other way to inherit eternal life unless the Son of God humbled himself to serve us. We would have no way out of our sin. We would have no way out of our misery. This brings us to a special consideration that there is a humility that is embedded in faith. That is part of saving faith. Peter is proud. He's a proud man. And there is something about his proud heart that is unwilling to accept on the surface this gesture from Jesus. The lesson is that, of course, we must humbly accept what the Savior does for us. And to be aware that pride will bristle up At the heart of the gospel, there's something going on with the human heart and pride that as it sees the only way in which we could be redeemed, unless we ourselves lay down our pride, we will not be able to accept the price that Jesus pays for us. Pride might prevent one from serving others, but it also prevents accepting a gift, particularly a gift of humility. Why is that? It's because we do not want to do that ourselves. Jesus, humbling himself, washing the feet of those whom everyone would consider below him, his own followers, if we accept this as a a legitimate way of signifying his life, his way, his kingdom then all of a sudden, it compels us to do the same thing. This is why Peter is shocked. This is why the disciples don't want to accept this. The prideful heart does not want to accept that God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the lowly things, in order to shame what is high and lift it up. But there's a humility in faith, in true, in true saving faith, in true gospel faith, that accepts all of these things because faith is itself the perfect antidote to pride. What does faith say? It says, I cannot earn this on my own. I cannot impress God on my own. I can't achieve my own salvation. I don't have the requisite righteousness to please God on my own. 
There's a humility of faith. There's a humility that we are to have as we come to the cross and we see what Jesus did for us. That's the wonder of his humiliation set before us that compels us to accept this wonderful display of humility. Now let's end with the response to his humiliation. With what Jesus does here, and we've given some consideration to it, you could probably uh, preach this passage so many different ways. We've uh, just honed in on a couple of things. The response to his humiliation is, of course, first, that we must clothe ourselves with humility. First Peter chapter 5 says this, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Have you ever read that passage, considering that it's, it's possible and perhaps even likely that Peter is thinking about this very event with Jesus as he's saying this? Clothe yourselves with humility. Put on the vestments of a humble heart. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter, having seen Jesus do this and remembering it, is now writing to the churches and saying, clothe yourselves with humility. Why? Because your Lord has done this. Thomas Watson says this, It is an unseemly sight to see God humbling himself and man exalting himself, to see a humble Savior and a proud sinner. No one can look at what Jesus does. No one can know who Jesus is. No one can understand what Jesus has done and know how righteous and holy he is and say that we need not live with humility and say that we need not seek humility in all things. Because of Christ, because of his humility, The same is essential for all of us. If you need to be humbled, Watson says in his great work as he's considering the humility of Christ. If you need to be humbled, he says do four things. Look within you, look around you, look below you, and look above you. Look within you. What do you find? A sinful heart, indwelling sin, proclivities to sin. Things that each and every day make you ashamed if you consider them in the holiness of God. Look within you. Can you be anything but humble? Look around you. What do you see? If you're honest with yourself, you will see others of God's people who are further down the road in certain ways than you are. You will see certain of God's people who have strengths that you don't have. Who have gifts that you don't have. And the multifaceted way in which God equips us all and gifts us all, is so that each of us would have a humility of heart as we consider the body of Christ together. All of us have been gifted to do something in a particular way, possibly at a particular time. So you look around you and you say, wow, he, she has this that I struggle to show for it. That humbles me. Makes me, rem- makes me remember that I have a, way, a ways to go. Look within you, look around you, look below you. What do you see? The dust of the earth. And what are we? We are dust. 
and to dust we shall return. Consider our form, consider the life that God has given to us and indeed is a glorious thing. The human body is a glorious thing. But God has made us out of dust and to dust we shall return. It is God alone who is glorious. Look below you, look above you. What do you see with the eyes of faith? You see the Christ who was exalted through humility. You see the God who has a special regard for the humble and the contrite, who will judge the proud and the haughty and the arrogant. So clothe yourself with humility. Second, Jesus frees us to do for each other what we would not have done. The disciples would not have washed each other's feet. Jesus commands us to follow his example and to do it. And that is a lesser act. That's what we need to understand and realize. Because we know that we can never stoop as low as Jesus did. What he has already done, we could never equal the glory of that act. A servant is not greater than his master, which is what Jesus said. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I, your your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. One of the truths that makes us so free to serve one another is that Jesus gives us by grace something better than we could ever earn ourselves. The salvation that we have in Christ is better than we could earn for ourselves. And so it sets us free to do what? To serve one another. To humbly seek ways that we can serve each other. God promises to exalt the humble. If you believe this, you will embrace the picture of our Lord. The church is especially a place that we can see that on display. The apostles, uh, really the foundation, cornerstone of the New Testament church, called to wash each other's feet, to live as servant leaders, to establish the church. The officers today of the church, what are they to do? To wash the feet of the saints so that they may grow in holiness, to seek to serve God's people. The same exact chapter, 1 Peter 5, Peter says, I exhort the elders among you, As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, notice he doesn't point to some kind of papal office there. He calls himself a fellow elder. He says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Be Christ-like and humble in the way that you rule in the church. The church has that model, servant leadership and humble service all the way down, community of of service. Finally, remember, be comforted that Christ came once in humility, but he will come again in majesty. 1 Peter 5, verse 6, he goes on to say, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Psalm 34, we read it earlier. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Psalm 25, O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. 
We will not be put to shame for taking refuge in another. We will not be put to shame for humbling ourselves before God and saying, I need what you have, what you can give me. I need your salvation. I need the nourishment to my soul that you alone can give. After Thomas Cranmer was humiliated and shamed in public, he had been forced to recant everything, sort of recant all of his writings. He stood in front of a crowd. He was still going to to be executed. He stood in front of a crowd on the day of his execution and uh, armed the courage of Christ. He recanted all of his recantations. He basically said, I take back all that I had done uh, in recanting my writings, everything that I had formerly written about Christ and about the gospel. I stand by all of those things. And as a symbol of that, he actually placed his right hand in the fire that killed him first because he wanted the, the hand that had signed all of those recantations to be the first part of him that burned. He ended his life by claiming Christ in the midst of suffering, in the midst of shame. But nevertheless, he did it. And what must have been his strength when he did? If he was thinking rightly, it was that Christ was humbled, but now is exalted, so that he would gladly accept humility on earth for the name of Jesus Christ. Perhaps in those moments he was thinking of one of the prayers that he wrote in the Book of Common Prayer for the Church of the English Reformation that said this, Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast aside the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light Now in the time of this mortal life in which thy son Jesus Christ came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the quick and the dead, we may raise, we may rise to the life immortal. Because of Christ, we too can embrace humility, we can embrace service, we can embrace suffering. Because that is what our Lord did for us, and that is what our Lord has endured for us. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word, Your truth, Your grace, and Your gospel. Build us up in it, and fit us more and more for Your kingdom each day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Sing number.